Thank you for coming back to another episode of Crime and Coffee. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. And we're here. Yeah. Hey, we're uh, here to throw some more disgusting details of murder and mayhem and mischief and uh, less mischief, more horribleness and uh, darkness. If, if you're here for darkness and a, and a good you know, story about death and murder, then you came to the right place. Um, has it affected your sleep at all? No, like I thought that it would. Um, because you know, to catch our listeners up, I'm kind of a rookie to these whole uh, true crime things. And uh, yeah, no, no. I, I Luckily, I can compartmentalize it. You know, and kind of leave it just in while we talk about it and then what I'm researching, obviously. And it's really fun to research these things. I, I will say that. I've always been a huge fan of researching in general, um, especially because you know, the internet just gives you so many different avenues. And it's it's really cool. You know, I've kind of leaned into something that you kind of taught me getting into different, you know, reading a couple different articles and then watching a, a documentary or two. Yeah, you get a lot more from the documentary because oftentimes they're interviewing somebody that's directly related to the case and affected by this person. Yeah, or, an um, adult, or somebody who has interviewed all of these different people that is like an expert in the case. It's know. funny though, how different sources give you different information, mm-hmm. like years, different ages, different things like that. Details that, you know, Ultimately you, you wonder matter. sometimes even, is it true? Mm. And, and the one I'm doing today, he, they interviewed him and they did say, you know, they're trying to sensationalize this and blah, blah, blah. And that might be true. And depending on what it was, you know, maybe news article or newspapers and things like that might not have been as truthful back in the day, but now we have a lot of like checks and balances and things. Right. Um, it's very different than if it were to happen within the past several years. Yeah. Um, but and just imagine now with the internet you mentioned researching. Um I'm sorry, we have a candle burning right now, and there's a piece of paper <laughs> leaning on the candle, so we're going to have to move that so we don't have a fire on our hands. Typically, typically you don't want fire. <laughs> so Mike and I are both 42 years old, so you know, back in our elementary school days, there was no internet, of course, even high school, so research was a real bitch. You had to like leave the house and go to the library and do the library. whole... Like, Who goes to the library? Well, how did you research at home? No, I know. You can't. Well, there you go. I so agree. you had to go to the library. Well, I'm saying in my current state, I'm thinking like, wow. Imagine having to go to the oh. library instead of having the internet at your hands. No, it's a terrible pain in the butt. And of course, at that time, we couldn't even drive. My parents worked full time. So I'd be like, mom, can you please take me to the library? Yeah. It's still a great place to, you know, I guess you can rent like books for your Kindle and they say you can get like movies and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm too lazy for that business. Yeah, I mean, we really are, unfortunately. Yeah, um, you're you, not, but I am. Well, which is weird because you're not lazy about anything in the house. Well, that's just the thing. I don't want to have to leave the house to go to the library to save myself $2 on a Kindle book or whatever. Right, right. You know, I'm I'm one of those people that I'm willing to pay a certain amount, a reasonable amount for convenience. Oh, you're willing to pay. We yeah. see that in the uh, the checking every every single month. <laughs> Mike's like, oh, another Amazon package. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's because I'm the one that's, I already start Christmas shopping. I know it's kind of absurd, but I, I do start in September. That's nothing wrong with that. Well, I just, I've learned in years past that I'm going to have a calmer Christmas. Oh, if, yeah. You had like an anxiety attack. One time you didn't do anything until December 1st. Yes. Oh, wow. That's yes. not like you at all. No. It's not, but you know, as the years go on, you learn, and yeah. that's what I've learned. I'm talking to you like I don't live with you every day. Yeah, like I I know this, and yeah, you 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 thought December first, holy shit, I don't have anything done, and that's for you. That is like mental mayhem. It is, and it was a Sunday morning, and I do these Shutterfly calendars for uh, us, my mom and Mike's mom, and they are a lot of work. It's 
all these pictures put into a 12-month calendar that you hang on your wall. And I hadn't even started those yet. And now it's become a thing where every grandparent expects it. And every family member likes to go over to the people's houses and look at these things. Yeah, they're really cute. And I've been doing it since basically Cameron was born. So about 13 years now. And they take hours each. And I hadn't even started those. So I was freaking out. So at this point, I kind of overcompensate. I do the calendars in October. I have our Christmas cards ordered in October. It's a little psychotic to a certain degree. But, you know, it's what I need to do to keep the... uh, the anxiety at bay. Hey, as long as you identify that and do it properly, you're good. Yeah. So, you know, you yeah. do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, so yesterday I was on Instagram and there was this girl holding a coffee cup and the coffee cup. I need this cup. It says, here we fucking go again. <laughs> I mean, good morning. <laughs> so I had told Mike the other day, of course, I'm PMSing. So my, you know, emotions are a little higher than normal. Uh, nailed it. And I was like, I just feel like it's Groundhog Day. I'm just doing the exact same thing every day. Like When you said that, I was like, oh, uh, what time of the month is it? Yep, yep. It's around that time where she kind of feels everything's crashing down on her. Yeah, yep. it's, it is. It is. It builds up and, you know, it's, it is the same. It's like the alarm goes off at 420 every morning and then you got to go to work and come home and do your workout. And so I really related to that coffee cup. On a macro scale, yes. But on a micro scale, every day is precious and you got little it's a gift. conversations. That's why they call it the present. That's why they call it the present. It is. Um, You can have these little conversations with your kids. Those are the different little things. If you look at those, then you can kind of differentiate. Yeah, just bite me. Yeah, I know. It'd be great if we were on vacation all the time, but that's not all the time. Well, we get what two, three weeks a year. Luckily, I get to hoard my PTO hours, so I I get lots of vacation. How many do you have now? Like. 200 i have no i probably have like 140 or 30 maybe oh i was way off yeah 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 Yeah, hey i like to have that cushion so that i could get the fuck out of dodge if i want to right it's important important. and i really don't take a lot of time no so um i want to say real quick so if uh, you're listening to this if you could uh there's a free way to support us it's really easy you just uh put a five-star review so yeah we're not even asking you for money or anything just give a five-star review on apple uh, itunes or uh, spotify wherever the hell you're listening to this sounds easy enough right yeah i we would appreciate it yeah i've heard like one podcaster say that i'm like that is a nice easy way to support you here you go five stars pretty you, much you, every podcast i listen to says that oh i'd like a, a free way to support they all well, ask they, for a review they don't say a free way to That's support but if you about. like our podcast and you want to support us oh okay but yeah. this one guy's like a free way to support yeah, you know, i'm not asking smart. you for a dollar there you yeah. go um so yeah please do so um i've I've been looking forward to this so now i get you've been talking about this subject which i don't even know the name um but you've been talking about this person for a couple weeks now and you're wondering whether or not you should bring it up and i'm sure you'll get into all that but i also enjoy kind of sitting back and listening to the stories just like one of our listeners here well like you said crime and coffee we sit here and we drink our coffee and it is nice to just be the listener sometimes but it's also nice to do the research and learn something you didn't know which interestingly enough in the crime world that i'm in and the podcasts i listen to i don't know if i truly ever heard this story before hmm. except for one detail at the end i do remember hearing that one detail so i must have heard it but i don't i didn't even know this guy's name hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you're pretty good at that stuff. Exactly, I do. It sticks with me, especially this story. I can't imagine how this story wouldn't have stuck with me. 
Yeah. So well, we've got our coffee. We got an espresso shot in each one. Um, I even put sweetener in mine, so I'm in it for an extra treat. Usually, usually I go black, but this time I got a little a little sweetener, a little coffee, a little creamer. We're getting crazy today. Yeah, yeah, getting nuts. What the hell? Let's do it. Hey, it's October, right? Let's That's get nuts. Right. October is a really big deal for a lot of people. Is it? It is. I you know I go on Instagram every so often. Yeah. And people do love October. And I felt like a different feeling this year. Like people are like, finally October first, fall. Like it was different. Maybe because of COVID and people are getting outside more or something I, I don't know but well it's different here because we live in sunny florida the sunshine state and it's currently you know averaging 89 90 degrees at the end of the day um but still you do feel that lack of humidity and if you've ever been to florida in the summertime it's a friggin' swamp and it's awful so we finally get like bearable temperatures at some points in the day whereas we're from up north and we certainly don't get that crisp air for a good another month i'd say i want to remind you that we're choosing to live here so a lot of people might listen and be like why don't you move i'm one of those people i maybe i'm just hard to please well you complain a lot (laughs) when we lived in chicago i would dread the winter and here i resent this effing heat yeah your whole family likes to complain it's like a a really new thing so like you know if you like you hit a branch on your your head yesterday and i don't even know if it hurt you but you said ow it was a surprise mike i'm not a robot like you (laughs) like and if there's a pain or if there's a feeling in general you're going to hear about it in from from allison oh you're so good i know you don't complain at all I really don't. Let me give you a gold sticker. I'll take one. Yeah. Thank you're you. not getting one. So oh. don't well, why would you there. say that? That's mean. I was trying to dangle the apple and then rip it away. That's mean-spirited. Yeah, well, I'm mean-spirited. Yeah, you are. So speaking of mean-spirited, let's get started here. Let's do it. So this one's a doozy. It is just kind of unbelievable. But I will just go ahead and dive right in. So this is a story of Dennis Nielsen. Dennis Nilsson. Yes. Some people online... How do you say it? N-I- or it's N-I-L-S-E-N. Okay. Some people in um, one of the... I watched a couple of documentaries. One was on Netflix. It's called Memories of Murder, the Nilsson Tapes. Um, one of the people described it as Nielsen, but okay. it's no. predominantly pronounced Nilsson. So anyway, Dennis was a Scottish serial killer and necrophile. Mm. Those are two horrible things yeah um his spree went on between 1978 and 1983 he has a known minimum amount of 12 murders of men and boys and he attempted to kill seven others so he was a a busy man between those several years um initially when he was caught he uh, confessed to killing about 16 victims um the majority were described as homeless or gay um, basically, he took advantage of the times and tr- during this time in the 80s in London, where these happened. Yes, he was born in Scotland, but these all happened in London. Um, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of missing people and they showed the like missing persons office and it was just a handful of people working and there were thousands of people missing at this time. So just an impossible amount with that yes. small amount of well, labor people. and yeah. an absolutely unmanageable amount of missing people that you just couldn't handle like it. where do you start you're like okay we've got this mountain like and then let's choose this one. oh wait there's 10 more that just came in yeah so he i don't know how calculated he was because you know the things that happened he met these people that night so it's not like he truly knew their background yeah but you know he tried to find people that were maybe 
coming over to London from wherever they were from to find work, find a new location, find a new them, and just basically hope that they their disappearance wouldn't be noticed is, okay. I think, what his MO was. Fair enough. Yeah. So anyway, and Dennis. Also, at that point in the 80s, um, you, know, you say gay, mm-hmm. and it was still obviously... You know the the mass population looked at gay people as wrong. Yes. Um. For you know, eons before that, and also into the eighties and into the nineties, even and now, mm-hmm. finally, things are starting to you know. Finally, out. I mean, think about how long ago that was. Yeah. So a lot of these you know gay people were probably you know closeted and didn't want to be known about, and maybe you know shunned from their families, uh, perhaps. So yeah, I'm just kind of you actually hit the nail on the head there, and that is what happened to a lot of these people. Yeah. So at this point in time in London, there was a lot of homophobia, but there was also a lot of uh, movement starting where there was gay marches and things like that, and people were finally starting to, you know, confess. Like, Fuck this. We're Fuck regular this. people. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, we're like you, just like other things. Like, yes. You know. So this was in the early 80s that this was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, Dennis was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserburg, Scotland. He was the second of three children. Um, his parents were both from Norway. His dad was a Norwegian soldier. Um, not very present in their marriage whatsoever. Basically, what I read was that the three children's conceptions happened when he was like home from whatever he was still working on with the military. Mm. So he wasn't around a lot. It was a very unhappy marriage. It didn't last, you know, very long. They ended up divorcing in 1948 when Dennis was only four. Mm-hmm. So, um, Dennis and his mom and his siblings began to live with his grandparents, and Dennis was exceptionally close to his mother's father, his grandfather. Mm-hmm. His grandfather was a sailor, a fisherman, I should say, um, so he would leave at certain points to, to do his fishing jobs, and Dennis was very lonely when this happened. And sadly, his grandfather passed away on October 31st, 1951, when he was out at sea, so this was a huge loss to Dennis. While he was out at sea? Yes. Huh. He was actually on a job in the North Sea when it happened. He wow. died of, I think it was a heart attack. Mm. He was only in his 60s when he passed away. So it was it was yeah. unexpected. I yeah. think he was 62, if I remember correctly. Jeez, like nowadays, it's a lot of like father's ages and things. Like, Yep, yeah. exactly. People are waiting a lot longer to have kids these days. So yes, it was young for a grandfather. And Dennis was five at this point. Okay. So of course, at this point in time, um, funerals and things like that happened in the home. So his body was shipped back to their home and he was laid to rest for the viewing or whatever in their home. So Dennis saw that his mother was crying and she said, do you want to see your grandfather? Um, So he was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin and his mother had told him that his grandfather was sleeping and had gone to a better place. He wondered why his grandfather hadn't taken him to that better place with him. He saw his grandfather's body and what I saw in these documentaries that in his mind, like something like flipped and his ideas of love and death fused together, hmm. which I call bullshit on. Yeah, that because sounds, that's like one of those like a lot of these things you're saying, like his mother said to him, do you want to see the body? It's like nobody was fucking there. Nobody knew that that's what she I said. I think the mother actually the mother actually was interviewed in several of these documentaries. OK, okay. so 
you know, and also as children, many of us have gone to a funeral of a loved one. Yeah. I know my grand or my um, dad's brother, my uncle passed away when I was probably maybe around Dennis's age, five to eight years old. Mine was six. My first uh, death, my grandpa. Yeah. And you know, you're it's it's surreal because you're seeing the person that you love, but all the life is gone from the body and it's just the body. And as a child and even as an adult, sometimes it's it's hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. My brother wouldn't go to a funeral for like years, like decades, because he had some tough losses early in life, um, you know, teenage years. Um, but, you know, and that's the uh, kind of an important thing. It shows you should really just tell the truth to your kids. Yes. 100,000%. Like grandpa wasn't sleeping. No, he was dead. Grandpa was happens. dead and not coming back. Yeah. And it's sad. It's okay to be sad. Yes. And, it is okay to be sad. Well, and you know, not to, well, I'm, I'm saying not to be a downer. I'm talking about this murder. It, uh, newsflash. It's going to be a downer. It's going to be a downer. But um, we, when we first got married almost 20 years ago, we got our pets. So basically what you can say is all at the same time, our pets are dying. (laughs) And (laughs) I I know that sounds terrible, but (laughs) you don't think about that when you get all your pets at the same time, that they're all going to kind of go at the same time. Mm -hmm. So over the past several years, we've had to put down our pug. We've had to put down our cats. And then now his brother has our other kitty was sadly had to be put down on Monday. And of course it was very tragic for our family. Um, But, you know, we're very open and honest with our kids about what's happening. And we talk to them about, you know, he led a good life and we're actually doing him a favor by doing this. And when we had to first put our uh, initial pet down, our pug, our, our daughter was only like maybe six. So, you know, that's a really hard age when she's only known to have her pug her whole life. Yeah, you just assume they're going to be around forever when you're young but it's one of those learning lessons of life that everything isn't going to be around us forever and they've got to know that eventually yeah so you want your kids happy all the time but they can't be happy without sadness and that's my i say that all the time but you know when when life is is ending you need to learn that yeah this person that or this animal the reason we're so sad is because of the happiness that we we had with them exactly they brought us so much joy while they were with us that that's why we're feeling so much pain that's the yin and the yang it's the balance of life and it sucks but it's also tremendous that yeah. you have that feeling because they made you so happy exactly so we actually got a puppy during the pandemic like so many people did because we had already put down two pets at that time and then we had a almost 19 year old cat on our hands and like a 15 year old chihuahua that we still have but sadly our cat deteriorated very quickly and it was just time yeah we told the kids well this is the week probably and and, and before the kids went to school i'm like all right say your goodbyes you know this is going to be probably the last time you see them and they you know shed a tear a little bit well of course we all cried but then yeah. we um, when they came home from school we looked through all the pictures and yeah. laughed and you know just we always have Good those memories. memories and that's what i just tell them they'll be in our hearts forever because they brought us so many memories and so much love yeah so anyway i call bullshit that this is like the moment that changed dennis you know i know this was a tragic time for him the person he truly connected to which i really don't think he connected to anybody in life yeah i mean especially if this guy was always out fishing and stuff then you know how much connection could they have had and yeah obviously if this is the the one closest adult to you you're going to get closer to him but i agree with you um you know uh, (laughs) he was probably fucked up well before this yeah for sure so you know again dennis was only five at this time um and after the death of his grandfather he became a lot more withdrawn and isolated distancing himself from his friends and his family that were trying to give him love and comfort he just kind of wanted none of it 
So um, then I guess there was another point in his life in 1954 or 1955. He almost drowned. He went to the beach by himself. He kind of got carried out to sea and some boy happened to be there and save him. So I guess that was also kind of a big moment in his life. Hmm. But oddly enough, a couple of the documentaries I watched did not say a word about the drowning, the near drowning, I should say. Yeah, that is kind of a big Yeah, deal. but in my readings, that was like a, a big thing. Hmm. Um, so anyway, Dennis's mother went on and remarried and had four additional children. So in addition to the three she had with her first husband, now she has four more. Nice. So he didn't stick around that much longer because he did enlist in the army early. But as he's hitting puberty, he's discovering that he is gay. And like you said, at this point in time, you know, he he was ashamed of it. He hid it. He wanted nothing to do with letting his family know that this was on his mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I really didn't know a gay person well until uh, I came to Florida and one of my bosses um, is gay and was gay at that point. And that... Uh, what do you mean he was gay? Well, he is gay. My current boss is not as oh, far as I know. No. <laughs> so well, that's, that's all I'm trying to say. Oh, okay, gotcha. So, um, yeah, and it was a great insight into the world of, of gay people and gay rights and things of that nature. And it was, uh, you know, he had a lot of the same feelings. And his mom still didn't know to the, to this day. She's wow, gone now. That's but, sad. Yeah, I'm like, come on, man, this, this is you. Like she's, and he's like, no, it's she's very um, religious. Religious. It's just not. It's gonna you know ruin things. And he's very religious too, mm-hmm. which is weird. And he's yeah. like. There's definitely some guilt on his part, and it's so sad because it it's is. like, man, this is just like something you like. It's like, you know, you don't like broccoli, you like onions, and yeah, whatever. It's just, it's a sexual part of you, but it's but just the different. huge part of himself he had to hide from his own mother, which he loved so much. Right? Yeah, I just, I find that very sad. Yeah. But sadly, at this time, this was kind of how things were. Of course. So he had claimed to never have any sexual encounters during his adolescence. Um, anyway, at wow, because age- you would expect some kind of diddling, you know, some some you know, uncle or something to or, or you know, like we a lot of the stories we go through a husband or wife or not or mother or father has some kind of sexual thing with their sons or daughters. And- yeah, I don't think anyone had ever touched him in an inappropriate way. That's unique. But I did read somewhere that he had kind of fondled one of his sisters when he thought she was sleeping. Okay. So they like some. It was very rarely well, fondling mentioned. is like kind of you know curiosity. Yeah, anything. but that's disturbing. Yeah, and completely wrong. Right. So at age sixteen in nineteen sixty one, he decided to enlist in the army. He became a cook and basically served as a butcher in the army army catering corps. Um, Corps. <laughs> Core, thank you. Yeah. Such an well, idiot. it's death corpse, I get it. <laughs> I know, I've got corpses on the brain. <laughs> what, a, what a moron. Um, sadly, these butchering skills came into future use for him. So he enjoyed his time in the army. Um, he kept his sexual orientation private. He didn't let anybody know about that. He would not shower with others. He wanted to be by himself in case he got an erection. He yeah, get a rager going. Yeah, didn't want anyone to see that. So he would end up like bathing by himself and like masturbating in the shower and all this other stuff. Huh, that's hot. So um, he also, I guess, had a room by himself and would, you know, do some experimenting in this room. He would cover his body in talcum powder and then stand in the mirror and envision himself as somebody different and maybe somebody that was dead. Hmm. In one of his interviews, he's like, it had nothing to do with the death. I just wanted to look like somebody different. Okay. 
Huh. Interesting. Experiment. Like I was thinking of other things, but then just covering yourself in talcum powder and standing there and looking at yourself. And I guess if it was kind of dark in the room and whatever, maybe you did look, you would look like a corpse. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I guess, you know, he would masturbate too as he did this. So generally most times he's masturbating. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, he's keeping his sexual encounters to himself. Yeah. Basically. Gotta take the edge off. And during this time, he was also starting to really rely on alcohol to ease his shyness and, you know, suppress the things that were going on in his mind. Yeah, escape reality. Exactly. A lot of times. So then um, he decided to leave the army. And from October to December of 1972, he ended up living back with his family. Um, His mother was voicing things at this time like, why don't you have any female relationships? Why don't you have a girlfriend? And his brother was suspecting at this time that he actually was gay. I guess they had gone out to a movie together that had something to do with um, people being gay, and he was defending that. And then his brother and him got into an argument one night. So his brother ran into his mom and said, Dennis is gay, and like outed him, basically. Wow. He never had gotten confirmation at this point from Dennis that he was gay. He was just suspecting. So Dennis said, I'm done with you, and never spoke to his brother again. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, because that's his big secret, and he's trying to tell his mom it's like you know and uh, so it sounds like he didn't necessarily tell his brother his brother was just guessing yes. based off of his defense of this gay, gay movie yes he did not ever tell his brother okay so his brother outed him he left home never spoke to his brother again but maintained just sporadic mostly written communication with the rest of his family so he kind of cut ties with his family at that point in time and then he moved to london so he went to london in 1972 and actually joined the metropolitan police department and began his training as a police officer so during this time he would have several morgue visits i guess he was very fascinated by this and the autopsied bodies Hmm. um however his Stint in the police department did not last very long. I believe it was like about a year. In 1973, I believe it was, he decided to leave the uh, police force and claim that it was due to their homophobia that he left. So um, he quit that kind of um, early on. And in 1973, I think at the exact moment, or not moment, but time frame, his father also passed away at this time, his biological father. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think... He hasn't been in the picture for a while. Yeah. And I don't know how often he even saw his father because, you know, they divorced when he was only four. Yeah. So, but he died at this time. I guess he gave each child like a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds, I should say. So he resigned and... Um, in December of 1973 to May of 1974, he was a security guard and then he took the job that he had until he was caught. He became a civil servant in May of 1974. He worked at a job center and actually I saw the sign on the place he worked. It actually said job center. (laughs) (laughs) A job center and a civil servant. Yeah. So a civil servant, I looked it up, but it's just, it's something about the Queens, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't know. It's something they have over in London. Okay. Um, but he, he was just a regular worker, so I don't know why that's called a civil servant. He basically was trying to find work for unskilled laborers. So um, it's something like our, you know, a social worker. Perhaps. I mean, he like a headhunter almost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're trying to help these people find Jobs. better places and, and their lives and things. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess he He's did. He's serving the civil, the people. The so, people. Yeah. Um, I guess he did okay at this job. I mean, he stayed there until the bitter end. Um, 
he was kind of mediocre in his attendance, but he did often volunteer to like cover shifts and work overtime to the point that in 1979, he was appointed. He was promoted to acting executive officer. Yeah, it's in the government. You show up enough and uh, you're going to get promoted. Yeah, exactly. So um, then in 1975, he met a man named uh, David Gallican. He was 20 years old. Uh, David was. I'm not entirely sure in 1975 how old um, Dennis was. Mm-hmm. You know, my math is not so good. Um, I guess David was outside of a pub. He was being threatened by a couple of men, and Dennis kind of stepped in and saved him, I guess, from the from the fight. He invited him back to his place. They spent the evening talking and drinking, and their relationship kind of progressed very quickly. The very next morning, the men agreed that they were going to live together in a larger place. <laughs> it's like, hello, we've known each other for 12 hours. You saved me. I'm going to live here. <laughs> Pip-pip, cheerio. Pip-pip, cheerio. Here's some tea. So several days later, they actually found a place to live together, um, 195 Melrose Avenue. And the reason why I'm giving you this address is because this is where the vast majority of murders ended up happening. So this is a specific, uh, important yes, address. Yes, this is a very big address. There's two addresses that come out in the story, but this is where the bulk of the murders happened. Okay. So they did live together. Um, I guess they were sexually attracted to one another, but they really didn't have a lot of physical interaction. And one story I read that they like really never did. So Mm. maybe they were more like companions. But Dennis was actually a real asshole. Like he wasn't a nice guy. Um, They would film each other a lot, just in normal, not like sexually, but just kind of just around their flat. They would just take out their video camera and film each other. And Dennis was not nice. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, again, he's drinking a lot at this time. And sometimes when people drink, they get angry. But oftentimes he was very belittling to David in these videos. Like one time he wanted him to pan up his body. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? You don't pan up like that. Haven't you ever watched any movies? Just like very short tempered and angry and not so nice. so weird that they would agree to live together so quickly maybe he's changed a little bit as you know the honeymoon was over and now it's like yeah his real side coming out maybe they did end up staying together for a couple of years um but i guess after one big fight uh dennis told david get the hell out so in 1977 they broke up and and david moved out and now dennis is living by himself lonely whatever it's just this is kind of where everything just goes wrong and within a year i believe it is that yeah within a year his killing spree starts Mm -hmm. so 1977 david moves out 1978 is when everything just goes to hell got it so now he's living in 195 melrose avenue by himself and the night is december 30th 1978 he meets a 14 year old boy 14 Hey, real quick, what uh, year was he born? Just so he I can was get the born, here. thank you, in 1945. Okay, so he was 33 years old. Yeah, I always like to get a kind of a frame of reference where they kind of just went off the rails. So he was born in November. This is December. So at this point in time, would you say he's 33? 33. Okay, so he's 33 years old when the shit just hits the fan. So sorry to interrupt. He meets a 12. No, I actually appreciate that. No, he meets a 14 year old. Oh God, that's insane because our son is 12. And like two years from him, it, like 
being like talking to an adult in any kind of oh god okay so dennis thought that he was 17 which i don't know how he thinks that that is better but um this particular boy's name was stephen holmes apparently he had been at a concert earlier that day and then he wanted to try to get into a pub to have some drinks but was being denied access because you know he was he was young so Dennis bumped into him there. He invited him back to his home to drink alcohol and listen to music. And this is basically the repeat performance moving forward for all of his victims. It listen was listen to music and drink swoop alcohol. in. Why don't you come back to my place? We'll have some drinks and hang out. And it's like, okay, sure, why not? You know, Stephen is being denied access to the bar. He'll go have drinks at this fella's place. So seems um, like a nice bloke. Yeah. Oh, you know what's funny? I actually put in parentheses Dennis with 33 at this time. <laughs> there you go. So thank you, Mike, for doing that math. So they both went back to his place. They drank heavily. They fell asleep. Nelson woke up the next morning. He found that Holmes was sleeping in his bed. And he later confessed that he was afraid to wake him. He was afraid that Stephen would wake up and say, I'm leaving. He did not want Stephen to leave him. He thought in his head, I want him to stay with me to the new year. And, you know, of course, at this time, it's, it is. It's New Year's Eve when they mm. wake up in the morning. And he didn't even give Stephen a chance to make the decision if he would stay or not. He was just so fearful that Stephen would leave him. He didn't want to be alone. So he decided to take matters into his hands and basically say he was going to stay with me whether he wanted to or not. And that was like his own quote. And so he straddled Holmes and strangled him with um, a necktie into conscious unconsciousness and drowned him in a bucket of water. So first choked him and then put him into a bucket of water? I think he initially choked him so that he would become unconscious. Oh, got it. And then he finished the job maybe he a, didn't want the death in his hands or something like but that. but the death was in his hands he yeah. drowned him in a bucket of water well yeah there's no logic well this. from what i hear in podcasts strangle strangulation for death is actually a lot of work i think what i heard is like it could take like eight minutes of constant force and pressure to death to death okay yeah so i think he would basically do this until they were unconscious and then finish the job by drowning okay so sadly poor 14 year old steven loses his life without even knowing he was sleeping when this strangulation happened um then he washed his body in the bathtub placed him in his bed and caressed his body and then he decided to masturbate over the body <laughs> God, which I believe happened quite often. So yeah. if I don't mention it in a case, there's a good, there's chance. A good chance it happened. I feel like he was a sexual thing for sure. Oh, for sure. And it was the complete control. Yeah. And he was actually described as a complete control freak. Mm-hmm. And what better way to control somebody when they're dead? They, they have, they're not going to talk back. Right. So this sick fuck kills them so that he can take full control over them that's crazy so like i wonder what just kind of flipped the switch and it was like you know he's probably wanted to kill people a lot before then well that's what i wonder because you know what you know because he lived with david why did he never think to do anything to david maybe he wished that he did and And the the switch was when david moved out and now he's alone in this flat it was just like everything just went to shit yeah um so he basically waited for rigor mortis to pass and then he placed his body beneath the floorboards of the of his flat where he remained for eight months Mm. and then he burned his body in a bonfire that he put in his backyard so 
195 Melrose Avenue was very handy for him because it was a bottom floor flat that had its own garden in the backyard. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to do easy disposals. Is it still there? It's it's there. I don't know if it's still if they tore it down. I'm not entirely sure. But this is a very busy part of London. I mean, there's homes everywhere. It's not like it's in like a private lot or something. Yeah, I was watching them do digs in the backyard. And I mean, there's homes everywhere there. Yeah. So he burned his body in a bonfire um, on August 11th, 1979. And that's weird. You can just burn a human body in a bonfire in the middle of London. Yeah, because <laughs> like, he had a fenced-in backyard. Yeah. I don't know if it had a fence, to be yeah. honest with you. I saw the video, but it escaped my mind. Yeah. So now we're moving on to the following year, because, of course, that was the end of 1978. He met him. like Basically, he killed him on New Year's Day, New mm-hmm. Year's Eve. Um, so now we're into October 11th, 1979. Good year. So we were just year. born yeah. oh, that yeah. year. But he uh, he waited like a whole year. Yeah, for... it sounds like he waited a full year. Well, I guess he was... So the eight months that the body was under the floorboards, mm-hmm. and then he probably burned him in the nine in months. In August. So. He burned him in August. Okay. Um, so now he's attempted... This is an attempted murder. He attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong, Andrew Ho, he had met him in St. Martin's Lane Pub, invited him back to his flats with the promise of sex. He attempted to strangle Ho, who was able to escape him and report him to the police. Um, Nilsson was actually questioned by the police, but Ho decided not to press charges. Wow. Again, I think a lot of the time it comes down to not wanting to be outed. How'd you meet him? Where were you? Um, yeah. What, were you, what was the what story? What were you doing? Yeah. yeah. Why'd you go back to his place? Yeah. So I think a lot of it stems down to like shame. Right. They didn't want to... They just wanted to just forget about it and never see him again and move on. Oh, and um, any sorry to kind of put you on the spot, but the Stephen, the first uh, victim, yeah, did his family look for him like at all? So Stevens, you know, I watched the documentary. There were so many different the people that orders. were talked about, but yes, and that's just the thing, and that's especially one of the people they interviewed the brother and sister. Like he had it in his mind that they were people that were not going to be noticed, but that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they were listed as being missing people. Well, maybe, you know, he's thinking oh, well, they're, they're shut-ins or whatever. They're, they're drifters. Drifters. Yeah. Sh- pushed out of their families. And maybe he probably talked to them. I imagine he probably talked to Steven. Steven's like, I hate my family. I never want to talk to him. I'm, I'm sure that's part of the, the equation. Maybe, maybe, or maybe not, but maybe, or maybe he probably not. hears that, you know, but in like puts it in his own little stupid head that like, Oh, nobody's going to notice this person missing. Whereas, you know, these people do have families yes, that care for them. And exactly. Things. And that is the thing that uh, the brother and sister of this one particular person I'm going to tell you about, they had come out and said, you know, with the media, it's everything is like about sensationalizing Dennis, but forgetting the victims yeah. and that they were people that were loved and missed. Well, that's why I'm thinking as I'm talking, any of these people we talk about, there's a chance that uh, one of their family members could listen to this. You right. Know? But you, you don't want to go over something like, I definitely want to say Dennis is a piece of shit. There's no doubt about that. Well, and he's then, a monster. Absolutely. So you can remember that every one of these victims were a human that didn't want to die these days. Well, you know what? I was actually thinking about the victims last night. We took our puppy for a walk. I'm saying puppy, but she's not anymore. Um, and it was just such a gorgeous night. And I was looking up at the stars. And again, you know, in Florida, the humidity has been so high. It wasn't. It just felt so great. And I thought to myself, like, he took that away from them to be able to go out. He just snuffed their life at age 14. Like, what what would Stephen have gone on to do? Who the hell knows? Right. But he took it away from him without a second thought. Because he didn't want to be alone. Yeah. Fucking loser. 
Um, so luckily Andrew Ho was able to get away and then now we're moving on to close to a year later from his first it's December 3rd 1979 he encountered 23 year old Canadian student Kenneth Ockenden now keep in mind out of all the murders he committed only eight were identified so there are still to this day they don't even know the the missing people they're just which is so sad because this these family members won't Never have, have a closure. closure exactly and you said so many missing people were at this time so it's yeah like could be any of them so this um particular uh, man kenneth he's from canada so they actually did end up like the canadian whoever put out like a missing persons thing and they really pushed it along mm. Um, because they had their country on like the push. Why the hell isn't London doing more? Like this is that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, England, I'm sorry. I think their hands were just really tied. And they didn't have the resources. Yeah, I guess it's different. Yeah, Ugh. thousands and thousands and thousands of missing people at this time. If Canada can do something, well, yeah, but like, they weren't successful in it. They right. they didn't identify it until he was caught. Yeah, but they had enough resources to say this person. Oh, maybe because they were overseas and that was a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. So Kenneth was in um, London visiting relatives. He was drinking at the West End pub where he bumped into Dennis. Dennis, of course, has been living in London for some time now. So he's like, hey, I'll be your tour guide. I'll take you around, show you the sights. And they did just that. And after they had gone out and did the touring stuff, they Dennis invited Akenden back to his flat for drinks and a meal. He could not recall the exact moment he strangled Akenden with his own headphones. So basically, he's t- telling Kenneth to listen to this music, puts his headphones on Kenneth, and decides to take the wire for the, the headphones and strangle him. Yeah. Ugh. Which, you know, you, you picture those big 1970s kind of big mm-hmm, covering over your the ears. ears. Yeah, listening to your record player yep. kind of thing. So he dragged uh, Kenneth across the floor with the wire, poured himself rum, and continued to listen to music with that same pair of headphones that he had just killed him with. I mean, he's just a sick, sick person. The next day, he purchased a Polaroid camera and photographed him in suggestive positions. He laid his body spread eagle on the bed while he watched TV next to him for several hours. It's like he truly saw these people as like his, his companion and his toys almost like yeah and uh, something to play with and like a doll yeah um, ugh, it's it's absolutely sick he then wrapped his body in plastic bags and again stowed him under the floorboards on four occasions during the time he was under the floorboards in um, a span of two weeks nelson removed kenneth's body from the floorboards placed him in the chair beside him as he watched tv and drank hmm. So he's putting this poor person under the floorboards and then dragging them out for company. It's and at this point, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get too much into the body, I guess, but you know, rigor mortis and everything, it's got to be a hard thing to do. Well, rigor mortis, I off the top of my head, I don't know how long it lasts, but it does pass. Yeah. So, um, but you know, you're dealing with decomposition though. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like he's a the professional that knows how to deal with bodies and things like this no this is just on the fly yeah just imagine the the decay in his house and stuff like just just, yeah and just like under the floor of his living room Mm. sick so then his third victim this is the family that was interviewed in um a couple of the documentaries i saw um one of the ones i watched last night was called the real des because that was his nickname des 
Um, and they were just very big, which of course they were on saying like, these were people that have families and they were loved and they were missed and they weren't just homeless drifters who wouldn't be forgotten. Um, so it's, it's very sad. So this was, um, 16 year old Martin Duffy. Um, this happened on May 17th, 1980. He was a catering student from Birkenhead, Merseyside, um, which is a county in Northwest England. Wait, Martin Duffy is the real Des? No, Dennis is the real Des. Oh, Des. Yeah, Dennis's nickname was Des. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. get that. Got it. Okay. Um, so Martin Duffy is only 16. He basically ran away from home, and he had a, a very close family. Um, you know, he was very loved at home. Um, he had hitchhiked to London on May 13th without his parents' knowledge. He had been questioned at this time, like at the time he was hitchhiking, by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare. Um, and, you know, he gets off. He has no money. He's sleeping near the train station for four days before Dennis approaches him. He's exhausted. He's hungry. This person comes up to him. Hey, you want to come to my place? Have some food and a drink? You're Hell desperate. yeah. You're desperate. I'm desperate. I'm yeah. sleeping in, in the train station. Warm meal. Yeah. So he was happy to go to Nelson's Flats. Duffy fell asleep in Nelson's bed. Nelson placed a ligature around his neck. He sat on his chest and tightened the ligature with, quote unquote, great force. Now, you know, poor Martin is unconscious. He drowns him in the sink. He bathes his body. He described him as the youngest looking I have ever seen. So, you know, that like got him going too. yeah, he loved like the perfection of, you know, these young bodies. Mm -hmm. There were they were flawless. You know, they're young. Yep. Um, He placed him in a kitchen chair. He kissed him, complimented him and caressed him. And of course, there was some masturbation happening as he sat on his stomach it's just it's tragic ever um did he get into he claims he never penetrated that's but again that could be absolute lies yeah i mean it doesn't really matter but and also he claimed to never pull a dommer and ingest them but again it could be lies yeah um i had to look up ligature i've read about ligatures (laughs) in several of these stories it's just a tying device Mm -hmm. like something something used for tying yeah things or whatever um, so he stored Martin's body in a cupboard for two days. He noticed signs of bloat. And then this is just so sick. This is what he says. So he went straight under the floorboards. Man. It's it's almost like he's like putting him in his place. Like, oh, no, you're going to floorboards with you. Yep, yeah, exactly. Ooh, you this here. is gross. Off to the floorboards. Mm. And in the end, when he's being interviewed and stuff, it's like he couldn't understand why people were upset about these things. It was like he just didn't understand what the bother was. It's like, he didn't see humans as humans as human, like not different than anything else with emotion and, and people who love them. So he's completely lacking any kind of like morality or anything like that. Yeah. You know, at the base you can be like, okay, how is a human different than anything else? But there's, you know, if you remove morals and you remove like just right and wrong, just general right and wrongs, then yeah, I guess that's a, a thing but you know uh, this is a society and you know humans have lives and things behind them exactly and because this piece of shit does dennis nelson decides to remove their life it doesn't mean that hundreds of other people are not affected not affected by it exactly and you know this happened in 1980 and their family is never to recover again and not even that but also this person has rights as a human being you know, they have the right to, to live. To life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
So at this point, you know, its frequency of killings is increasing before the end of 1980, because, of course, uh, Martin was killed May 17th. So we're five months into 1980. So now before the end of 1980, he killed another five people, attempted to murder one other. Um, only one of these has been identified. This was 26-year-old Billy Sutherland. He had gone to London from Scotland to find work. He was said to have visited the job center where Dennis worked, and Dennis had noticed his Scottish accent, commented on it, and invited him just as per usual out for drinks. Uh, music, uh, drinks, or sex, or a warm Food, meal. a place to be. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he's definitely preying on the, the people that have needs. Exactly. He His family had filed a missing persons report for him, but they didn't discover that he had been killed for another three years until Dennis was caught. Um, he claimed to be extremely drunk during many of his murders, so he was vague in his recollections of the unidentified victims. But oddly enough, he was exceptionally concise on recalling how they were murdered mm-hmm. and even would get defensive with the press when they got dates and times wrong. Yet he didn't even have the decency to, to put a name to the person he was killing. Well, decency is out the window. Fucking piece of shit. Yep. Um, so well, how frustrating is that? They're like, what was the person's name? Like, I, I don't even know. Yeah. But it's yeah, like, graphically recalling how it was happened, how they were killed. And it's, uh, yeah, as a, a police person trying to investigate this, it's like, what are you going to do? Like he killed somebody. He knows that he did. He's not telling you the name. You're and never going to find this And he may not person. know the name because right. he was exceptionally forthcoming with information. He was very quick to talk well, to the police. it didn't matter to him. It did not matter to him. Yet he was able to tell them how long the body had been retained before dissection. And these are names that will never be recovered no. because they're they're gone they're, they're gone. one of these thousands of missing people and this guy killed them and has no idea what their name was so you're never going to find this person and that you know sucks. sadly when they were digging up the garden um when all of this came to be they found several i think it was like four or five dental plates and they found out that they had been um, manufactured in germany but in order to get them possibly identified to a person it would have cost like an insane amount of money so it was basically denied you'd think german authorities would help with you that, would but think but you know whatever the situation or circumstances were and the police officer who was trying to get this done was like you know these are people that could by, be identified that their family could get closure on but now we'll never know who yeah. these belong to hey, germans like help us out here yeah throw us a bone so um, during this time, he had also allegedly tried to kill 29-year-old Douglas Stewart, who was also able to escape and testified at his trial. Oh, wow. Um, so now he's got bodies accumulating under his floorboards, which it's now entering summertime. So we're dealing with insects and odor. Um, he would occasionally dig up a corpse. Basically, what he would do would keep about three bodies, three to four bodies at a time under the floorboards. And then I think it would get to the point that there was no more room. Mm-hmm. So he would kind of be forced. I wonder why he stopped burning. Um, he does that. He does. I think he did like three or four burns. Okay. Ugh. So that's what he would do. He would accumulate them and then he would start to bring them back up to burn them so that he could dispose of them. But he would try to disguise the horrific scent by placing deodorants beneath the floorboards, spraying insects, insecticide twice a day, but yet the smell and flies still remained, he says. Um, he would wrap them in plastic and put them back under the floorboards. Twice with Akenden and um, Duffy, he'd like randomly dissect, I guess, wrap them back up, put them back down. And he would always do the dissections on his kitchen floor. And he basically, in a sick 
mind thought that what could would pro- provide the most horrible smell from a body? Oh, the innards. So he would like pull out their organs and sometimes just toss them in the back alley for the dogs, rodents or whatever to scavenge. And then he said in his own words that when he did have to do these dissections, he would have to get blinding drunk because of the smell and maggots. Gosh. I know. Um, so now in late 1980, he did remove and dissect each of these six victims that had been killed since December of um, 1979. He burned them in a communal bonfire and a waste ground behind his flat. He placed an old tire into the fire to disguise the smell of the burning bodies. Man, so it's like the, a horrible like rubber tire smells like burning plastic and like just horribleness. I don't know if you're like me, but if I smell burning plastic, I just think like cancer and just like ugh, gross. Yeah, and they interviewed one of his neighbors who would recall him making these bonfires. She just assumed he was like burning trash or something. Right. And at one of the burns, three of the neighborhood boys stood around the fire. You know how people are just drawn to fires? Yeah, something to do. Yeah, so they're standing around the fire as he's like breaking down human remains. Oh, my God. Yeah. So actually, it reminds me, um, he did not have a fence around his yard. Mm. I got the picture back in my head about them doing the dig ups. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, just the neighborhood kids are coming around not knowing he's the sicko is burning bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes too, you know, they said that his, um, attendance would be spotty at work. He would often call out in order to do these dissections. Right. Um, so then there were three more victims on or around January 4th, 1981. Um, he encountered an unidentified man described as 18 blonde, blue eyed at the golden lion pub in Soho. He invited him to partake in a drinking contest back at his place. He strangled him with a tie, placed him under the floorboards. He called out sick January 12th in order to dissect his body, plus another victim that had been killed about one month earlier. It's like he doesn't even know. Just some other person that had been killed. Like he's kind of walking through the situation. He's like, oh, yeah, and there was another body. I may as well do two dissections today. Yeah. Um, By April 2nd, two more unidentified victims had been claimed. One was described as an English skinhead that he met at Leicester Square. The other was a Belfast boy, which I don't know if you know, but Belfast is the capital um, of the largest city in Northern Ireland. Oh. So that's how he was able to just a couple of little details of who this person may be. Yeah. Um, And then... He's just so sick. He said he casually reflected end of the day, end of the drink, end of a person. Floorboards back, carpet placed, and back to work at Denmark Street. So it's just part of his life. Those were his words. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a habit that he's formed and he's just you know, does a little dissection, kind of like somebody would watch some TV. It's such it means so little to him. It's just part of his job. It's kind of like a hobby. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's kind of like I come home from work. We have dinner. We work out. And then, you know, I read for a bit and go to bed. Right. Except his includes a bunch of horribleness. So his final victim at this location on Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow. He was an orphan with learning disabilities. He, Dennis had found him slumped against a wall on September 17th, 1981. Um, I guess Malcolm had told him that the meds that he was taking for epilepsy had caused his legs to become weak. Um, Nelson walked him back to his residence and called an ambulance for Malcolm. Oh. So Malcolm was taken to the hospital, and the following day he was released. 
he had come back to Dennis's place to just thank him. Thank mm-hmm. you for helping me. Dennis invited him in um, to have a meal, rum and coke. Um, Mal- Malcolm fell asleep on the sofa and Nilsson manually string- strangled him while he slept, stowed his body beneath the kitchen sink the following morning. So weird that he would help him. He helped him. I wonder if that was part of it to see if he would come back and be like, yep, I, he came back. You know, if that was part of the sickness. I don't even like, know where that came to be, but to it's see, just... The, we'll be like, well, you know, he, let him let him go, let him get some help, and then he came back, and he's like, oh, well, he came back. He must he must be killed. You know, this is... It was you know, meant to be. Meant to be. Yeah. So um, now it's mid-1981, and the owner of his um, place... <laughs> Finally, he's like, hey, you got some orders. Uh, we're getting some reports. <laughs> I, I mean, I know. can't even imagine the stench... And they said it was the bottom flat, so you can't tell me that this wasn't traveling up yeah, to absolutely. other places. And they're all getting flies and stuff and bugs and rodents and noticing that there's dogs and rats in the backyard eating different things. Exactly. So I guess his landlord was never particularly fond of Dennis. I mean, Dennis, again, is a very abrasive asshole, asshole person. Mm-hmm. So his landlord is planning on renovating. He says Nelson needs to vacate. Um, Dennis, of course, was resistant because he's got this perfect location where he can stow people under floorboards and burn them in the backyard. Yep. But he accepted the 1,000 pounds to vacate, and he decided to move to an attic flat on 23D Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill District of North London on October 5th, 1981. Okay. The day before he left, of course, he's got some work to do because he's still got some bodies under there that he needs to take care of before these renovations happen. Can you imagine if he'd never had to move from this place? Like oh, how many Lord more? knows. Yeah. Because this next location is the reason why he was caught. Of course. I mean, this is, it was baffling to me that he's been able to do this regularly with nobody asking questions. Like, this landlord must have had many, you know, properties or something. Or, and then neighbors just know that this is part of the deal, that he's been around for a while. You know, this is just how it is. Exactly. So, ugh. So um, he had to do some work and dissect and burn the last five victims he had stored. I know they said he would keep three to four under the uh, floorboards, but apparently he had five at this time. Again, to disguise the smell, he used an old tire um, and he was it was time to move now. So he moves to 23 Cranley Gardens. He was on the very top flat of this place. Um, He had no access to a garden any longer. And somebody had speculated that perhaps he took this location because he wanted to be caught, Hmm. that he didn't want easy access to disposal. Well, yeah, maybe there was something in the back, back, back of his head that was like, this is, I got to stop this. You know, kind of like, well... Well, it's like an alcoholic or anything. Smoker like, you or whatever. Wanna, you want so desperately to quit, but you keep going back to it. Yeah, it's just part of you. And uh, yeah, maybe, you know, like it was weird that he chose the top floor. That's another weird well, thing. Well, that's the thing. He has absolutely no access to a garden or floorboards. He could have chosen anywhere to live. Below him is another person. Uh-huh. So there's absolutely nowhere to stow the body at this point. So he specifically goes top floor, no garden. Yep. So um, for almost two months, he didn't really do much in this location although he did attempt to strangle a 19 year old student named paul Nobbs, but he stopped himself from completing the act so this is like the third person he tried to strangle and failed i believe I mean, so from, from all, i think there were we five or maybe there were seven attempted murders okay um but yeah so and you would think like it would happen more because you know he's choosing other men who could be his size if not bigger yeah and he was actually a very skinny guy dennis he was not an yeah. overpowering fellow i looked up a picture of him he didn't look that that big at all 
um yeah that's um and in the documentaries his voice is just it's so creepy it sounds like um if you're on the haunted mansion ride mm-hmm. like those guys that talk to you in the ride the the one like the main character that speaks to you and blah 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 yeah that's how he spoke really yeah he sounded just like that to me he kind of sounded like anthony hopkins too because you know he's scottish yeah so anyway um, on March, uh, March of 1982, he met 23-year-old John Howlett in a pub near Leicester Square. He lured him back for drinks, watched a movie. Howlett went to the front room and fell asleep in his bed. One hour later, Nelson tried to wake him unsuccessfully. There was also a question if sometimes he put sedatives in their drinks. Hmm. So who knows? Um, and was like, well, here's some drugs and then... Uh, I'm going to try to wake you and like whatever little fantasy he had. He's like, oh, he didn't wake he up. He didn't wake up. So then I guess he couldn't wake him up. He sat at the edge of the bed drinking rum and deciding he decided to kill him. It was a major struggle. This is kind of ironic. It falls at this point. Like I said, some of these people could be bigger than him. Yeah. Um, Howlett tried to strangle Nilsson back. Nilsson used an upholstery strap to strangle Howlett into unconsciousness Uh, There were three attempts over 10 minutes. I guess it was a a real struggle, which I don't know how the people below didn't hear the struggle happening, but who knows? Um, And he decided to fill a bathtub and drown him. Um, I guess for over a week, Nilsson had strangulation marks on his own neck where he was trying to fight back. Ah. It's very sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And then May of 1982, Carl Stotter was 21 years old. He met Dennis at the Black Cat Pub in Camden. Well, wait. So um, I don't know if you know, but this John Howlett did, and he drowned him. Did he do the same thing he normally does, like put him in cupboards? Or uh, so at this point in time, he's got nowhere to, to dispose of them. So yeah. they're remaining in the flat, just sitting there. Just yeah, he basically bagged them up. <laughs> Ugh, okay. Um. So good job knowing that. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. So um, now he meets Carl Stotter. He's 21 years old and same MO. They meet at a pub. You know, Carl's down on his luck. He's had failed relationships. He sees this somewhat appearing nice man and goes back to his flat. He invited him for uh, alcohol with the assurance of no plan for sexual activity. Like, hey, no worries. Just come back to my place. Whatever you want to hear, come back to my place. Yeah. So Carl did come to his um, trial. He survived this. So it was really creepy. I guess he was invited to sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor. And I'll talk more about this. But like when the police come into Dennis's flat, I mean, it's an absolute shithole. Like the mattress they show that he had been sleeping in is bare. It has no sheets on it. And the stains on this mattress were just horrific Mm. like i don't know if some of this was blood but they were all killed in a matter of strangulation and they were said to be dissected on the kitchen floor so i don't know what these stains were on the bed but they were disgusting well knowing dennis how we do he's just um, disgusting probably jizz uh blood and lots of gross stuff bodily fluids so it's like he's kind of prepping um carl he tells him just be careful of the zip on that sleeping bag because we don't want you to get choked up in it like something of that matter. Hmm. So um, at trial, Stotter um, said he was initially woke to think, because, you know, you're, you're prop- they were probably drinking. He wakes up. He's confused. Initially, he's thinking that Nilsson is trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. He vaguely recalled then hearing water running before he was realizing that Nilsson is trying to drown him in the bathtub. 
He said that he briefly raised his head from the water, shouting, no more, please, no more. Nelson thought he had killed Stodder. He placed him in an armchair and realized that he was still alive. He rubbed his limbs and his heart to increase his circulation, covered him in blankets, put him in bed. When Stodder became conscious, Nelson lied to him, saying that he had gotten caught up in the zip of the sleeping bag. So I guess Stodder, yeah, he just you know, tried to convince him that it wasn't foul play. And then Dennis also let him live. Like he brought him back. He brought him back. Yeah. That's really interesting. And thank God. I know. Um, for Carl's sake. But oh, wow. So I guess he was in and out of consciousness for a couple of days. Um, he told um, Carl that he had placed him in cold water because you were in shock. He took Carl to the train station himself. Like he brought him to safety. And then I guess Carl did go and seek um, medical attention. Um, I believe he went back. Yes, he did. He went to the police, told them about the situation, and they basically pushed it off as a lover's quarrel. And nothing was done about it. Because if you say you're gay, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, these guys. And then the homophobia takes Mm -hmm. over. And it's like, I don't want to look into it. Exactly. So Carl, sadly, his story is it doesn't end well. His sister was interviewed in the documentary I watched last night, The Real Des. Um, he, his life forever changed from that moment on. He was extremely, extremely depressed. He turned to alcohol. He became a severe alcoholic. Well, he listened to that voice in the back of his head saying, this is wrong. I wonder if, um, Carl Stoddard saying, please, please no more. Like it was kind of like a pleading for him instead of fighting him. Yeah. He was begging for his. Yes. Maybe that was like, oh man, this kid, you know, person. Is, I'm going to let them live. Uh, I'm going to let them come back. Maybe. I don't know. But regardless, Carl never really recovered from this incident and ended well, brain up... brain injuries and stuff, I'm sure. Who knows? Lack of oxygen. Who knows? But, you know, he turned to alcohol and ended up dying when he was in his 50s. Mental. And yeah. it didn't just end there. Apparently, his sister had a child and his child suffered from depression and thought in his head that he didn't want his mom to suffer like Carl's mom suffered. So he committed suicide. Yeah. So it, it didn't just end at Carl. His nephew committed suicide because he didn't want to cause pain to the family. Like the family suffered because of Carl. Jeez. It's just, it's so sad how it's a domino effect. It yep. didn't just end there. Um, and then in 19 October of 1982, uh, Dennis met 27-year-old Graham Allen, who was hailing a taxi. He invited him to his flat for a meal He doesn't recall the moment he strangled him, but he recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with full intention of murdering him. Um, His Alan was actually not gay. His and I don't know what of these people were or weren't. Sure. But Graham was actually married. Um, His wife was interviewed in the Netflix documentary. Her name was Leslie. And she said that that he was the love of her life. And sadly, he was addicted to drugs. And the morning that he had left home, it was Halloween. And she had noticed that he was acting like he had had a fix. So she said, if you go back out and have another fix, don't fucking ever come back. And she said, that's exactly what happened. He didn't ever come back. And how sad is that? Yep. You always like say things and then, you know, don't really mean them or whatever. And then, yeah, you wish. I'm sure she beats herself up about saying that or whatever. But, you know, yeah. things happen. We're human. It's terrible. Yeah. So Nelson kept Alan's body in a bathtub for three days before he dissected Alan on the uh, kitchen floor. He called in sick on October 9th, 1982, in order to do this. Um, and he said that he 
kept Graham's body in an armchair for two days while he went to work. He would come back from work and they would sit together and watch TV. It's like, I'm sorry, Graham's not watching TV, you sick motherfucker. Yeah. Um, then his final victim happened on January 26, 1983. This is 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Um, he was last seen with Nelson walking in the direction of the tube station. Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol stupor in an armchair as Nelson sat listening to rock opera. He approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said, Oh, Stephen, here I go again, before he began strangling him with a ligature. Um, he bathed his body, laid him upon the bed, applied talcum powder, powder to him, arranged mirrors around the bed, and laid naked alongside the body of Sinclair. Several hours later, he turned Sinclair's head toward him, kissed him on the forehead, and said, Good night, Stephen. He fell asleep alongside the body and then later dismembered him and placed him in plastic bags, which he stored partially in a wardrobe, partially in a tea chest, or a drawer beneath the bathtub, I guess various places. It's not a very big flat. Um, and it was indicated in one of the things that I had read that Stephen must have tried to commit suicide at one point because his arms were um, found with bandages around the wrists. Hmm. So perhaps he tried to slit his wrists at one point, I believe I read um, so now at this point in time, we're dealing with three bodies and he's trying to figure out how to dispose of them because right now they're just in sealed bags throughout his apartment. So, um, I guess he began to try to boil parts of the body. Uh, one part of the <laughs> boil, yeah, documentary that I read, he had taken a severed head, put it in a pot of water on the stove, turned it to simmer, and then went to sleep. And he woke up, he saw that it was still simmering away, thought, like, does it need more time? He was basically trying to get the flesh off the bone. Yeah. And he, while this was all simmering and happening, he made himself a piece of toast and had it in the kitchen. Right. I mean, this is just the mind of a, like, just actually... He's gone. Just yeah. gone, yeah. Ugh. So and, like, I can't imagine how he could, like, work regular jobs. Like, did uh, was there anybody interviewed that was, like, a coworker or anything that would say Yeah, they talked to, I think, some coworkers, and they just basically said he was kind of odd, but not yeah, nothing like anybody to else. take notice. Sure. No. You know, and he'd go to work every day with his little briefcase, which, by the way, they said that he oftentimes would use uh, Martin Duffy. I guess he used his case as like his own work briefcase. Kind of like a little jab to people around there. Like, like he's carrying this murder victims. And Martin was a catering student. He used Martin's knives for a lot of the dissection. Wow. And I was not sick. Unbelievable. So, you know, he's trying to dispose of the flesh and internal organs, small bones. How is he doing it? Oh, he's flushing them down the toilets. Well, yeah, and then it's just kind of screaming. He's looking to get caught. Right. Like there's, I mean, you can't be, you know, very careful with where he is. He's at the top of the flat. He's got nowhere to be. He's got a small place. Like this is this is going to end. Yep. So on February fourth, nineteen eighty three, he himself wrote a letter of complaint to the estate agency, complaining of the clogged drains. <laughs> What the fuck? Yeah. Like, okay, so he's ready to be He's got to be. Yeah. So, he doesn't want to like call the cops and say I'm caught, but he wants somebody else to report. Right. Him. Yeah. So, um, 
oddly enough, he basically all the cards fell by a dino rod employee, basically the plumber guy or whatever. Rotor rooter. Yeah. He was called out um, to the location because it wasn't just Dennis that was complaining about the clogged drains. His other tenants were too. Um, Michael Catran responded to the plumbing complaints made by Nelson and other tenants on February 8th, 1983. He opened a drain cover at the side of the house. It was like a decent size covering that you can, I think it even had like little, like a little ladder to go down into it. Um, he discovered a flesh like substance. It was like packed with it, Mm -hmm. packed with a flesh like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin, but it did definitely pull, put a light bulb on in his head. He did not think it was from an animal. Like Mm. sickeningly enough, he thought it looked like human remains. Um, so he reported his suspicions to a supervisor, Gary Wheeler, Um, But it was evening time. It was very nasty weather. It was snowing. It was getting dark. So Gary Wheeler had said, let's go back in the morning and we'll investigate it then when there's better light. So um, what's funny is that Dennis actually came down to uh, Michael when he was doing his drain inspection and said, it looks like someone has been flushing down their KFC. He said that to Michael Catran. He's trying to throw the scent off a little bit exactly so at 7 30 a.m the next day katran and wheeler returned they found the drain had been cleared Hmm. and neighbors later said they did hear dennis like down there he had cleaned it out and michael was actually um on the documentary said if a drain could be sparkling this one was sparkling well now he just saw where his uh his problem is and he's like well i'm just i'm just gonna clean this up at this point exactly so it's like oddly enough he's complaining about it maybe wanting to get caught but then he's trying to erase the evidence yeah you go back and forth i'm sure so you know he erased the evidence that was right there with invisibility but there's other side drains there and not to mention like you can't get rid of all the bones there exactly well and he didn't so katran had found some scraps of flesh and small bones in a pipe that led from the drain linked to the top flat of the house it appeared to be from a human hand like kind of like the knuckles and fingers of a hand Mm -hmm. um so he called the police and on closer inspection they discovered more small bones scraps of what looked like human or animal flesh in the same pipe all leading from the top flats mm-hmm. um so these items were taken to the mortuary where pathologist david bowen found that they were human one of the pieces of flesh you could tell was from the neck and it had a ligature mark on it uh. um so detective chief inspector peter J and two of his colleagues were waiting outside of nelson's flat for him to return from work and there, right on the dot of like half past five comes nelson with his briefcase from work And he sees these police officers. They tell him they want to discuss the matter of what was found in the drains. Um, And, you know, Nelson's kind of like, well, why would you want to talk to me about drain clogs? And they're like, yeah, so let's go up to your flat. And we'll tell you. And the officer um, that was interviewed in the documentary said the second the door was open, they they know the smell of decay. Yeah. And that smell is unmistakable, and they knew immediately that there were bodies in the in the flats. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's horrible. So you know they discuss what was found in the drains, and Nilsson says, "Good grief, how awful!" 
And the um, chief inspector said, don't mess about. Where is the rest of the body? He immediately points to the wardrobe, like without any hesitation, nothing. He never gave any kind of resistance to talking, to confessing to anything. So he tells them they're in the wardrobe. They open the wardrobe. There are two black trash bags, which in England they call them bin liners. Mm-hmm. I always love the, the way English people speak. Yeah, your, your stories are a lot from England. Yeah, they do. Um, so they said they were like to the gills filled. Mm-hmm. So they're in the car taking him for suspicion of murder. And they know that these two bags are so full. So the chief inspector says, is it one body or two? And Nilsson in the car says 15 or 16 since 1978. Just like that. Oh, wow. Without any hesitation or anything. So the chief was talking in these bags. He's referring to what he sees. Yeah. Dennis is talking about his whole career. Exactly. So he says in an interview, 15 or 16, it was just a figure, not an exact number, because it it may or may not have been 15 or 16. But then he kind of like went with it. He's like, well, I didn't want to like muddle up what people were thinking. So and he's just so casual in his interviews. He's just got his leg over his knee, leaning back in a white T-shirt as if he was talking about a football game. Yeah. You know, because it's his life and that's just what it is. It's factual. He doesn't understand why people get mad at it. Exactly. So later they took these bags to um, from the wardrobe to the mortuary. One was found to contain two dissected torsos and a shopping bag of various various organs. The second contained a human skull with little flesh on it, a severed head and torso with the arms attached, but hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to the moist heat, which was from the boiling. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll talk later about what I was just going to say. Just ignore me. So then moving on to his confession, um, in an interview on February 10th, he confessed to the further remains in his, um, Cranley gardens apartment that they could be found in a tea chest in the living room. And then others were in an upturned drawer in his bathroom. I guess the detectives that went to the scene just said never in their lives have they seen or had you know from then on would they ever see such horrifying things like he's one said in the stovetop in a pot was a head jeez i mean just never in a million years did they think the horrors that would lie behind that door what an absolute shithole can you imagine getting into this place you talked about the shithole like mattress smells of decay like oh my this guy's living in here like every day he lived in here and And obviously he probably got used to the smell and didn't bother him at all i don't know how that's possible because when you're coming back from an eight hour shift at work your nose is still adjusting yeah and if i my eyes served me right on the bag they found in the wardrobe one of the two i believe it was an air freshener like sitting on top i couldn't tell what it was but it's like you fucking idiots yeah there's two bodies decaying in here and you got a air freshener sitting on top boxes of baking soda but i'm not kidding you this place was an absolute dump Mm -hmm. just like an absolute shithole but i recall jeffrey dahmer's apartment too when they showed pictures of that same thing just an absolute shit show um so these people are just the lowest of the low so um they're interviewing him now and they're saying you know they're finding the remains from the three men in the cranley gardens apartment it was steven sinclair one he could not name and another one that he knew as john the guardsman they were all killed via strangulation usually a necktie he admitted to attempting to murder about seven others who had escaped him 
He also accompanying, uh, he told them, you know, this is only where three of the murders happened. Melrose Avenue is where the bulk of them. He went with them to Melrose Avenue to show that where the victims had been burned, showed them the garden, all of that. He was very matter of fact in his confessions. He said, I have no tears for my victims. I have no tears for myself, nor the bereaved, those bereaved of my actions. So he was just completely unremorseful for what he had done. Just, that sucks. Sucks you know, for the families to see that. It's very sad. So at, um, and then I also in these documentaries, you know, the police force is bringing themselves out to Melrose Avenue. It's dead of winter and they're faced with this garden and having to sieve through all the contents to try to find remnants of these people to tr- try to identify them. Yeah. And they really did their best. Like one of them, um, I think it was, I can't remember which person they identified, but it was like in a book on a random page, they found his fingerprints. Wow. Yeah. So they really tried to do their best to bring justice to these victims. Can you imagine pouring through all those details? Like that's got to be so hard. In the yard itself, they had it like tented off and she just looked at the one police officer. She looked at the yard and thought like, how in the hell are we going to get through this? It's winter. The ground is basically frozen. And she said, you know, you would think like maybe every couple hours, oh, I found a piece. She's like, no, it was every couple of minutes. Wow. They found just like countless amounts of random bones, teeth, the dental plates. I mean, just nonstop. She said somebody would be calling out, found something, found something. It was just scattered because he would do that. He would burn them and then he would take a rake and scatter them among the garden. So Mm -hmm. it was just a disaster. So now moving on to his formal charges at 5.40 p.m. on February 11th, Nelson was charged for Sinclair's murder. They were able to identify Sinclair in his apartment um, at the time that they discovered Nelson. So he was initially charged with his murder right off the the bat. So at least they can process him and start getting things working. Yeah. Yeah. And he said he was uncertain as to why he killed. He says, I was hoping you would tell me that. Like, what the fuck? Well, he's so mentally gone. He doesn't. Yeah, he's like, why did you kill? I don't know. Why Why does anybody kill? Exactly. Tell me. He said he had no motive, and the decision was made only moments before the act. He said he would sometimes shave the victims, apply makeup after bathing them to conform to his physical ideals. He stressed that he had not penetrated the victims. They were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. When questioned if he had remorse, he said, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't, and I had no no other thrill or happiness. He said he took no pleasure in the act of killing, but worshipped the art in the act of death. Hmm. On May 26, he was committed to stand on trial for five counts of murder and two attempted murders. Um, the sixth murder charge was later added. It was because they had found the jawbone of um, Graham Allen too close to the trial to add it to the um, conviction. Oh. So sadly, Graham's murder was never charged to him. But uh. um, And then for whatever reason, I guess the attempted murder of Carl Stoddard, he was never charged for that one. I'm not, I'm not sure why. As the lover's quarrel that they said yes, or whatever. Exactly. So it's probably because of how they classified it or something. Which is complete bullshit because Carl attended the trial and gave his story of what happened, yeah. which was exactly the MO of what he had done to all of his victims. Yeah. I mean, not only did he try to strangle him, he tried to drown him. Well, maybe it was just like, you know, um, him versus him story, uh, hearsay. And it's all maybe, 
you know, maybe Dennis was like, no, no, I wasn't trying to kill him. And then that would put a kibosh and everything. Because he has to basically say, yes, that he did this. To, yeah. You know, you need that evidence. Who knows? So Dennis was brought to trial on October 24th, 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two attempted murders. And the son of a bitch pled not guilty on all counts. Insanity? Um, Exactly. That's what he was trying they, you know, obviously there was no question that he had been the one to commit the murders, but the question was what was his state of mind before and during the killings. So the I mean, process clearly he's insane, I guess. But here's what happened. So the prosecuting counsel argued that he was sane and in control of his actions and killed with premeditation, whereas the prosecuting counsel argued that he suffered from diminished responsibility and should be convicted only of manslaughter. Do you know what manslaughter is? Um, like the definition of it i looked it up before but go ahead and okay me. so it's the crime of killing a human being without malice or implied malice mm. so like i guess if i okay say you pissed me off really bad and i was chopping vegetables and i turned with the knife and slit your throat i had no plan on doing it but you died is that manslaughter uh yeah or like a car accident like that's a big manslaughter okay, one. with the like drunk driving or whatever yeah like you weren't out trying to kill people but your actions cause somebody to die. Gotcha. That's that's a big manslaughter thing. Yes. So what it was um, ultimately deemed was that he had no disorder of the mind and that he was sane and he didn't get off on any kind of insanity. Wow. So they've got him for murder? They got him for murder. Oh, yep. Good. Um, and then there was another Douglas Stewart um, was one of the people he had t- attempted to murder. He came to be a witness. He testified that on November 1980, he had fallen asleep in a chair in Nilsson's flat, woke to find his ankles bound and Nilsson strangling him with a tie while pressing his knee into his chest. He was able to overpower Nilsson and said, Nilsson shouted, take my money. Coward. <laughs> Stewart had reported that he reported this to the police. Um, and again, question but dismissed as a lover's quarrel Mm -hmm. um he had another person testify paul knobs he said he woke early with a terrible headache he washed his face in the bathroom he looked up at himself in the mirror and found that his eyes were completely bloodshot he had broken blood vessels in his eyes and face could you imagine seeing that on yourself no and i guess when nilson saw me exclaimed god you look bloody awful and he advised him to see a doctor Nobbs decided not to report the incident. He did not want his sexuality revealed. Ugh, yeah. Gosh. And then, of course, Carl Stotter took the stand. Um, you know, he did have psychiatrists that testified. He's definitely deemed narcissistic. He has an impaired sense of identity. Um, he was able to depersonalize the other people and displayed signs of maladaptive behavior, which is basically it stops you from adapting to new and difficult cir- circumstances. He had unspecified personality disorder, occasional outbursts of schizoid disturbances. Um, The jury retired on November 3rd, 1983, and the following day they found him guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. I I don't understand things like that. Like, what do you mean life imprisonment with minimum of 25 years? What does that mean? It's like all the rules, like in case he's able to, yeah. If he's got good behavior, the fucker killed. Yeah. That's insane. He's a fucking serial killer. This guy needs to go away and cannot Forever. be in society ever again. Like so, but th- I, this was overthrown. So the initial sentencing happened in 1983. In 1994, this was overturned and just blanketed by life imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, this is where you start talking about you know death penalties and stuff. You can get into the morality of are are we you know should we be able to take somebody's life or not? You know, but if if it ever is a case like this, it's like this guy 
is a horrible, horrible human being. And he's not capable of changing right. because he doesn't see what he did to really be a big deal. Which is why I, I am kind of surprised that they didn't get the manslaughter because he he didn't go out and be like, I'm going to kill somebody tonight. It's like he saw them. Then he's like, okay, that, that's probably why. So he sees them, brings them to his he, apartment. He wants consciously to kill them. brought yeah. them back to his place with the intention right. of killing them. Right, right. So it wasn't, okay, that makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. So but, really that is premeditation. You're right. You know, he got himself dressed and went out to the pub in search of a new victim. Could you imagine something, somebody like this guy who's killed, like, admittedly 15 to 16 people and tried to kill seven others, like, even standing in front of a judge and trying to get off of no. charges in 20 no. years? Like, and I mean, I don't of, even know what the jury has to talk about. Yeah. Like, uh, guilty, um, guilty. Yeah, yeah, guilty. Okay, yeah. anyway, let's go get a bite to eat. Right. Um, but again, you know, had he not moved to Cranley Gardens... Lord even knows how long this would have gone on. Yeah. And it only happened because his tenant or whatever it is um, needed him to move out. That It wasn't like he chose to move out. No. Had he not been forced to move out of that place, Thank God. he may have never been caught. Right. I mean, to the way it sounded, <laughs> it sounded like it could have gone on for years and years. And like this only just happened from 1978 to 1983. Mm-hmm. So the man was very efficient in his work. Yeah. So basically, uh, to end the story, he is no longer with us. On May 10th, 2018, he complained of severe stomach pains. They said he was taken to York Hospital. I guess he had complained of these pains and denied going to the hospital. I guess he didn't like healthcare workers. Dennis, don't worry. I'm sure they don't fucking like you either. Um, He was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is basically an enlargement of the abdominal aorta that usually causes no symptoms until it ruptures. They oftentimes find it on scans incidentally, and it's kind of just like a ticking time bomb. But his ruptured, they did repair it, though he died on May 12th of a PE, which is a pulmonary embolism. There you go. You're so smart. And a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. He was cremated on June of 2018. No family members attended the um, service. His ashes were later handed to his family. And that is the end of Dennis Nilsson. Thank God there's an end to him. Man, alive. Man, alive. That's that's pretty horrible. And you've been researching this one for a while well there's just so many victims yeah, you know sad. it's just really sad you and want to do your due diligence on each one because they're human beings what's really sad to me is that only eight were identified so there's others that will never their family will never know what happened to them they're just they're just gone and maybe they were drifters but they're still human beings exactly yeah still and you stories. know some people that are find that they're gay back in that day they maybe didn't even give their family a chance to have a reaction. And maybe the reaction would have been acceptance, but they were just too scared. Truthfully, it's very rare that there's acceptance in that day. You know, now there's a good chance of acceptance. And there's what still probably a 50-50 shot. I don't know, know about 50-50. No, but. It's, I, I can't imagine. It's just like there's so much... Like just from a book in the Bible that says, you know, I don't even, it, I don't even, the Bible isn't even very clear about it. I think didn't it say you a man don't, shouldn't, a man lay, with shouldn't a lay with man. another man? Yeah, something like there's that. like one spot. You know. I could never attest to that. I've never read the Bible, so yeah, it's in the Old Testament. There's things that say you shouldn't eat crustaceans. That say if your wife uh, bleeds, you shouldn't like have her in the house like these are all part of the the old testament that we don't follow everything in there but the man and the man thing we're following we're that. really putting the yeah importance on that piece like how about let's just treat people as human beings and so they don't feel bad about coming out of their sexuality you know and, and not 
find a serial killer. That's insane. That's exactly. insane. Well, and sadly, you know, he was questioned somewhere around five times by the police. Oh, wow. You know, they did. They came You think by. it would add up? They'd be like, well, this guy's been... On the radar. They, yeah. Maybe they just thought, well, he's abusive and we're going to keep on until they get somebody who's actually dead. Well, you know, nothing we can do with this guy. And he was well known on the scene. Like people were being interviewed. They called him like the taxi man or something because oftentimes he would go to the pub and then take a man home in a taxi. Oh, wow. So yeah. bartenders probably. Yeah. I mean, a lot of drinking. So he's at every pub. All yeah. The time. He was a huge drinker. And so many of the home movies, he's he's always got a drink in his hand. Always is rum. Yeah. Oh, man. What a horrible human being. Yeah. I'm glad he's dead. Me too. Huh. Well, good job on that one. Well, thank you. Well, well done. Good research. And uh, yeah, sorry to the families involved in that one. Me too. Um, well, yeah, it's, uh, it's about all this week. We got uh, an hour and a half on this one. Well, it's a lot to cover. It was. So, so. thanks for all the, uh, the detail. And uh, again, yeah, if we're going to be back next week with another one. I'll be up. And uh, yeah, we're a weekly podcast. Listen to us and give us uh, five stars. We'd right? appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, anything else from you? Nope. We'll just see you back next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.